Welcome to Northern Overexposure Podcast. This is a show where we overanalyze the cult classic TV series Northern Exposure. And uh, we also, every episode, we try to introduce the show to a new audience, one of our friends or, or just uh, an acquaintance maybe that has never seen Northern Exposure a single episode in their life. Get sort of like the outsider's take on it. I'm always joined with my co-host, Charles, who is new to the show um, for this season, right? Yeah, I've never seen this television show at all. It's my first time seeing it. My name is Lee. I've seen the show a number of times. It's one of my favorite shows of all time. And this episode, we're talking about episode six, Sex, Lies, and Ed's Tape. What a spicy title name. Do you happen to know what the title is referencing? I don't, actually. I thought it was just referencing the numerous things that were happening within this episode, but is it actually a reference to something? So it's a direct reference to um, a film called Sex, Lies, and Videotape, directed by Steven Soderbergh. You know, um, oh. are you familiar with that film or that director? No, not at all. I, I know of the director, but not of that film. Uh, but does have you seen that film? Yeah, it's a great film. Um, it was, I think, I believe, in fact, it was his debut feature film. It was critically acclaimed. I believe it won the Palme d'Or, which is sort of like the highest award Ooh. that a film can win. Uh, it's at the film, the Cannes Film Festival. Um, and I believe there's like a really great quote from Steven Soderbergh. Uh, well, essentially after winning the Palme d'Or, Steven Soderbergh being like a young director had some great quote uh, to the effect of, um, you know, this is my first film and I'm afraid I'll never make a film as good as this. And Honestly, I, I mean, I love Steven Soderbergh's uh, career, but he might be right with that. <laughs> Somehow he made <laughs> the best film of his career, the first one out of the canon, you know, out of the barrel. Oh, wow. One hit wonder, you yeah. would say? Uh, no, no, no. Like I said, he, he's made a lot of great movies. Uh, it's just like this one is so astoundingly good. Uh, I strongly recommend it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, well, does that movie have any bearing on the episode today that we watched? Well, I think its, it's strongest bearing on uh, on this episode is that this was a, a film that came out in 1989. So it, it's, you know, significant in the time range of the show. I mean, like, as I said, this show probably was being shot in the fall of 1991, this episode, mm -hmm. um, if not in the summer. So still a couple of years out, but it, it was kind of a big um, cultural, you know, he was, uh, Steven Soderbergh was sort of this indie filmmaker and has since gone on to make uh, huge Hollywood blockbuster films, but also make his own sort of like independent uh, indie sort of more cerebral films, kind of juggling back and forth, which is... Uh, oh, so he's juggling what Ed is having a problem with in the film. Oh, in yeah, the there you go. Today. So that is, that is a great connection. I mean, at the time, I don't think Soderbergh had, uh, had his whole career laid out like you know, if you look at it now, you can, you can follow each of his films and some of them are sort of like, it's one for the studios and one for himself, you know, mm -hmm. but it's true. Like, you know, in retrospect, uh, Soderbergh's career sort of reflects a lot of, uh, what Ed's film career may be, you know, or he dreams to be, he wants to make films. And, uh, as we see in this episode, Joel kind of gives him this sage wisdom of, you know, write what you know, like kind of, use your own experiences. Don't worry about the high concept uh, films that Hollywood's producing, you know, the Jaws and the, um, the Indiana, Jones. Indiana Jones and Heck stuff. E.T. Yeah, yeah. Uh, should we just get into it? Yeah, let's do it. You want to yeah. start us off? What, what are we looking at? Well, what we're looking at is Joel with glasses. And I don't think we've ever seen oh, him with glasses. Is that so? Yeah. See, honestly, 
that totally uh, slipped my mind because I mean, obviously, I've seen the show a lot. I wasn't uh, looking out for that. So this is uh, according to Charles, who you know, this is your first take on it. This is the first time we see bespectacled Joel. Yeah, so he's using it whenever he's in his office and he's doing his doctor stuff. And he is examining Shelly, who is there for her appointment with her pregnancy. Her- yeah. And, and, you know, if you're just, if you're just tuning in now, Shelly has been pregnant for maybe a couple episodes, maybe one episode. Uh, I want to say two episodes so far. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She's yeah. been gaining a lot of weight as it turns out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she's incredibly worried that, what was that? She said her breast would actually explode. Yeah. She's like, you know, she's gaining weight. Her, he's, she's worried her breasts are going to explode because they're getting larger. Um, her nipples are uh, referenced as being as hard as sapphires. I think twice in this episode, I found that an interesting. That's what Halling says about um, her nipples. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there you go. But um, yeah, I think I thought it was really funny. Um, Joel's response uh, to that comment was just like, uh, okay, is that a question? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't know what to say about that necessarily. Right. Um, I like that he bribes her with a Mars bar in order to take a blood test. Have you ever had a Mars bar? I was going to ask you about that. Oh, gosh. Not since like a child. Since so, like Halloween. So I was actually doing a little research. Uh, the Mars bar has been discontinued in 2002. I mean, I think it's been brought back uh, for short runs, but you, I don't think you can get a Mars bar today, at least in America. I, I, I didn't know that at all. That is yeah. unbelievable. Actually, so I think as it turns out, the... Um, American version of the Mars bar. I think it might've originated in the UK or something, or um, let me see what I got here. Um, So there's actually two different formulas for the Mars bar. The original British version um, is essentially what the American Milky Way is today. The American version of the Mars bar uh, has nougat and toasted almonds covered in milk chocolate. They later added caramel to that recipe, which I guess is what, um, you know, brings it closer to the Milky Way bar. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so, you know, this show is old. It's a bit dated. You know, you can't really have a Mars bar today. Um, well, I didn't even but, know that. I swore I, I swore I saw it on the supermarket, but maybe I was looking well, at like a Twix bar or something. As I said, uh, it sounds like they brought it back for like short runs. So it's quite possible that you did have one recently. But um, mm. according, according to the Wikipedia, they have been discontinued in 2002. Crazy. Do you think that she was afraid to take the blood test because deep down she knew that her pregnancy was a hysterical pregnancy? Or oh, do so you think spoiler she's honestly... alert. Spoiler well, spoiler alert. <laughs> 20 minutes. You, you'd yeah. find out. Not even 20 minutes. I think in the first like 15 minutes of the episode, you find out. Yeah. But so it turns yes. out that Shelly is actually not pregnant. Uh, we'll get there, I guess. But yeah, so this is a hysterical pregnancy as Joel terms it. Her body believes that uh, she's pregnant. So she gets all these physical manifestations of pregnancy. Uh, while after drawing blood and taking a blood test, it's revealed that no, she's actually not pregnant. So Interesting. Like, do you think she was worried because she knew subconsciously all along that she wasn't pregnant? Um, Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. Did she know that subconsciously that she was just having hysterical pregnancy, but she feels that the reason that Holling is so attached to her is because he has conceived a child with her? Or do you think she's just afraid of needles? I think she's definitely just afraid of needles. I mean, no, that's a, that's an interesting, um, deep read, you know, on it. Uh, but I think that sort of, uh, aversion to needles is part of, um, part of sort of this larger, uh, character, um, 
character trait that uh, Shelley has throughout this episode um, where she's, co- uh, she's constantly being sort of uh, related as a, you know, as a child and hauling as an older man. There's that dynamic. Um, obviously right. we get uh, another big spoiler. Let's just unleash all the spoilers. Another big spoiler is that Shelley is in fact married, not to hauling. Cause if you remember in a past episode, uh, they don't actually get married legally. Um, they kind of elope and agree on this weird progressive, uh, we're going to stay together, but not have a marriage license, uh, deal that they <laughs> agreed to. Yeah. Awfully progressive for 1990. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. I like it. Um, but it turns out, uh, in this episode, it's revealed that Shelly has been actually married all along to sort of like this high school sweetheart who comes in, uh, into this episode. He's introduced as Wayne. Um, and the reason I bring that up now is because, you know, their sort of interactions, um, are heavily contrasted as, or just like heavily displayed as sort of very, um, childlike, like a childlike romance. And I guess we got to remember that is she still 18 years old? I don't think it's been a, a year, um, since she's been introduced, you know? Yeah. I think she's around 18, maybe turned 19, but I like what you brought up that whenever those two Wayne and Shelly are together in scenes they're you can see that they're almost like children and it's I, like a high school I, romance, you know? Yeah. Like a high school romance. But what I like about their dynamic and the dynamic that she shares with Holling is that when she's with Holling, she's, she doesn't seem 18. She does seem young, but she doesn't seem as young as 18 years old. She seems like she has some wisdom beneath her belt and she just seems a little ditzy. But when right. she's with Wayne, she regresses back to her high school oh, self because yeah, they yeah. start talking about uh, old, like old times when they were in high school when they would go out and drink beer and they would go and talk about their other classmates. I, I like that. There's, it, it's true because whenever I hang out with people from my old high school, I regress back to my high school self. And just like Shelly is doing what she's seeing with Wayne, she just regresses back to that age. Um, yeah. But no, I, well, just to comment on that for a second. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I think the show does um, frequently sort of contrast the age between Shelly and uh, Hauling by, you know, displaying um, or describing or I guess displaying Sh- Shelly as younger, like, having sort of like childlike, uh, characteristics and hauling as even older than, I mean, they're, they're incredible. She's incredibly young. He's incredibly old. So they don't have to go too far, but you're right. Like whenever she is with, um, whenever she is with Wayne, it's accentuated uh, a lot more. Yeah. About her immatureness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What I find crazy is that she didn't remember that she was married to him. And I, yeah. I find that hard to believe that you don't remember if you were married to well, someone, even if it was done all, all you know, off the cuff and yeah, by just a judge. I, I definitely suspend my disbelief here, but um, yeah, I, I kind of did. I, I wasn't able to kind of really formulate my thoughts on it, but I kind of was thinking about this uh, while watching this episode. This episode kind of hinges on um, a lot of little loose ends that it's almost as if like they you know, in earlier episodes, uh, for instance, the episode where Shelly and Holling are supposed to get married, um, they kind of leave that open-ended, you know? And Mm -hmm. now it's almost as if the writers for this episode decided to, like, exploit these open-ended little plot lines that were never really wrapped up or finished. It's like, well, 
they never got married and Shelly still hasn't had a baby yet. So uh, how can we bend this as far as we can? It turns out <laughs> Shelly was actually married. We never talked about that. And Shelly's actually not pregnant. You know, she hasn't yeah. had her baby yet, so we can prevent it from happening, I guess, by wait. rewriting the whole storyline. Wait, 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 wait. Hang on. I just mm-hmm. realized something. Uh, last episode, the Russian flu, where everyone was sick with uh, the flu, there was yeah. only three people that weren't affected, Joel, Maggie, and Shelly. But they claimed that Shelly wasn't sick because of morning sickness. Mm-hmm. Oh, do you think she was actually was sick and it wasn't morning sickness? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they that just explains. Perceived it. Yeah. Yeah. But I what, perceived it to be morning sickness. I guess we didn't really, I mean, it would be overanalyzing it, but uh, <laughs> that's what we do here. Like, well, that's why, what we do here. why is Joel... Uh, why are Joel and Maggie not affected by the flu? I mean, I guess it's just what the writers wanted, you know? Yeah, you're right. <laughs> uh, there's actually one thing that I wanted to say about Wayne and Shelley real quickly is that mm-hmm. Wayne, Shelley and marriages in general is that okay. whenever Holling confronts Shelley about being married, Shelley says that they were almost married. And then she also says almost doesn't count in horseshoes in marriage. But that's not nice. how the expression goes. What Horseshoes does count for oh, almost. Wait, that's right. You know, I actually watched this. It must have been recently because I was. I, I thought about this. I mean, obviously I watched this episode recently, but I mean, within the past <laughs> year, maybe I watched it because I, I remember thinking about that expression and being like, how does that expression go? Because almost does, I, I mean, I've never played horseshoes, but you can sort of like almost get the horseshoe on and you still get some points. Is that how yeah, it works? Yeah, yeah. That's the rules on so horseshoes. She, so she was In way fact, off. The, yeah, she was way off. The full expression that she was trying to say was almost only counts for horseshoes and hand grenades. Oh, that gosh. is the full <laughs> expression. So she completely. Do you know any? Of the, do you know sort it. of like the etymology or the um, the origin of that phrase? Do you know anything about that? Oh or? no, Just curious, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I wish I did. <laughs> yeah. Actually, that's very great, interesting. It is a great, um, great little turn of phrase. Um, mm-hmm. So that's main. That's one of the main plot lines. But the other plot line that we're going through is that Ed is trying to make a movie. Yeah. So. Pretty much right after this, um, I guess I, I want to pay respect to where where, where it's due. Um, the first scene with um, with Shelley in the doctor's office uh, with Joel, um, really masterfully shot. I think it's really great. It opens up with uh, dissolve into you know from black fade into uh, very close up on scales because again, like I said, uh, Shelley is gaining weight and mm-hmm. you know this is how they're figuring out they're weighing her, and so it's very close up on the scale. Um, we kind of pull out a little bit as Joel pushes the scale aside. We get into a more traditional two shot coverage. Um, it's just great, you know, camera movement, uh, character movement throughout the scene. And it's predominantly covered in, in one shot. There is a cut in this, um, in this scene, um, probably a couple cuts, but they're very, they're very, um, sort of, they're not afraid to move around in the frame and they don't use a lot of edits. It's very, very well shot. And then, um, moving into the next scene, uh, which is the Ed sort of storyline introduction. Um, we sort of start out on uh, the main street, uh, I guess, in Sicily, and the camera dollies and pans uh, towards K-Bear, the window of K-Bear. And inside we can hear uh, Chris and Maurice arguing over, I believe uh, Chris wants to play Indian music on the radio and Maurice is just kind of yelling at him. Um, and it's almost, um, this feels very improvised, this scene, 
You know, like they were kind of given lines, but um, maybe the director was like, just keep it going. You know, we're going to be panning in. We're going to be dollying into this uh, window. So just keep going for as long as you can and just kind of yap at each other and argue. Did you get that yeah, sense? I did get that sense. And it was even reinforced when I watched the deleted scenes because they had it's to keep shooting the a scene. Little. Yeah. Right. But in the one that aired... I think that Chris says, well, what do you want to listen to, Carousel? And I think in the deleted scenes, he says, well, what do you want to Brigadoon, listen to, right? Brigadoon? Yeah. Right. So they must have been given just, you know, they just said like, hey, just do whatever you want. Just make it look like an argument. And yeah. here's the general outline of the script. Which is actually, I don't think I've ever, I mean, I haven't noticed it as clearly. Like this seems uh, very improvised, you know, um, as compared to the acting in other episodes of this show so far. I actually kind of mm-hmm. really liked it. Um uh, if you can't tell already, I, I am really impressed with the direction of this episode. Um, shout out to Sandy Smolin. I don't know how to pronounce it, but that's the director of this episode. Um, and I'm sure we'll get back to him. Like, There's a lot of very interesting cinematography in this episode um, that I just really love. Um, but Sandy Smolin, it's funny, I couldn't really find a whole lot about him. He, I think, got his uh, big break whenever he was nominated for like uh, the Sundance like grand jury prize for his first feature film. What was um, it? It's called Rachel River, I believe. Let me just confirm that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's called Rachel River. And um, the lead actress in that um, movie is Pamela Reed, um, who you may know. She's in a few other things, but uh, they are married actually from, you know, I guess they met on the set of that film. Um, oh. And he's gone on to direct a lot of TV a lot of TV movies, a lot of documentaries, but he never really ventured into feature films after that, as far as I know. In fact, I was really, again, I was really impressed with the directing of this episode. I wanted to find a copy of Rachel River. Um, as far as I know, it it might exist on Laserdisc uh, and, and VHS, <laughs> but I haven't found a copy online. I really want to see this. Um, if anyone knows where I can watch this movie, please write in. Um, I'm, I'm <laughs> going to just hilarious. keep scouring the internet for a VHS copy and, and try to try to watch that. <laughs> but uh, sorry, let's get back to the topic at hand with Ed. Yeah, yeah, no so worries. what's Ed up to in the scene? Yeah, so I think Ed's having trouble trying to write his movie. A little bit of writer's block. Yeah, a little bit of writer's block. He was able to borrow the Macintosh, as as Maurice would call it. Back yeah. in 1990, they didn't just say computer or yeah. Mac. They just called Macintosh. it Macintosh. It's Maurice's Macintosh yeah. over at K-Bear, I guess. Mm-hmm. And he's having, I think he's all... He's having dream sequences or daydreams, at least he's know? picturings. Yeah, daydreams or picturing how something would play out in his fantasies because he's imagining the iconic Indiana Jones scene. Yeah, his where, daydream is yeah, yeah, go ahead. It's very Indiana Jones inspired. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's that uh, it's that scene whenever I think Indiana Jones is having to face off against an adversary and the adversary does a bunch of fancy moves with his sword. Uh, he's trying to intimidate him and then Indy just simply pulls out his gun and shoots him. Yeah. But in a twist, in this fantasy, his gun doesn't work. Yeah, for some Indiana reason. Jones character. I was like confused. Um, I guess uh, throughout this episode, Ed's daydreams are supposed to reflect the um, Hollywood high concept movies. Um that, you know, he, he's trying to emulate at first before he has that talk with Joel. And I feel like they don't really make any sense and they don't work. And, and maybe that's on purpose because it's sort of like Ed trying to figure out how do I make a Hollywood blockbuster? And it's just not the type of movie that he's 
going to direct. You know, it's not the filmmaker he's going to be. Um, but yeah, so whenever Indiana Jones and this dream sequence, uh, it's played by Chris, is facing off with mm-hmm. uh, Maurice, who plays sort of like this, um, the, the adversary, the sheik sort of character um, dancing around with the sword. So whenever Chris pulls out his pistol, it just doesn't um, clicks. You know, there's no bullets in it. And then Maurice pulls out like this magnum hand cannon and is essentially <laughs> said, he says, make my day or something like that. You know, like the Dirty Harry. Is it a direct make my day? Is it a direct, direct quote from Dirty Harry? And he, he shoots Chris with the the magnum or something. Um, yeah, yeah. Absolutely blows him off his feet. And then Ed wakes up and then they... Uh, both Chris and Maurice stop their bickering and they realize that something's up with Ed and they try to help him out. But what I find uh, really funny on this scene is that Maurice tells Ed... Pretty soon they'll be naming overstuffed sandwiches for you down in the lower 48. I thought about that for a little bit because I know that was something that was done often in in the 1990s, but we don't do that that much anymore, like naming celebrities and filmmakers um, sandwiches named after them. So I looked into some that would have been in their day, and there's a couple. So there's the Scott Bayo sandwich, the Woody Allen sandwich, which is also called the Broadway Danny Rose, named after his film, mm-hmm. the Alfred Hitchcock sandwich, and the Gertrude Stein, which as far as I can see is the only one that's named after an author. Hmm. So... Yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah, there, maybe Ed will get his one of sandwiches like that. I know there's a episode of a Curb Your Enthusiasm where uh, Larry David gets a sandwich named after him, and it's like whitefish and lock. It's just something like very um, stereotypically Jewish. Well, I guess stereotypically Jewish, but it, it's uh, unpalatable. Like he does not like the sandwich, oh. <laughs> and he tries to get uh, his friend. I believe I think it's Richard Lewis, or it's probably Ted Danson or Richard Lewis, to trade sandwiches with them because. His friend also has a sandwich named after himself. So he's like, oh, okay. you know, why don't, why don't we trade, like, let me put my name on on yours. It's like roast beef or whatever. Everyone loves that. It's whatever it was, you know. Um, <laughs> and they, you know, they don't agree. Um, but uh, um, quickly about the Indiana Jones sequence. Um, mm-hmm. I was a little surprised by the, you know, the production value here. At first, it seems like this uh, sort of um, sort of uh, Middle Eastern bazaar set. Um uh, and all the coverage. But uh, if you watch closely so towards the end of the sequence um, in some of Maurice's uh, wider coverage, um, mm-hmm. you can see that the backdrop is simply, you can see cars and you can see the storefront in Sicily. So they literally just built this set oh. in the middle of town. They built this bizarre set. That's even better. Yeah, it's pretty cool. That's even better. Because it's sort of I this dream world that. that, this daydream world that um, I guess is in Ed's head, but he can't fully picture it. So it's, being replaced with... Uh, he has to borrow from his common, surroundings. Yeah, common surroundings. Yeah, so um, we get... Uh, again, we're still at the very kind of opening of this episode, but uh, we get a lot of really um, quick uh, setups at the very beginning. So as we said, we have the plot line with uh, Shelley's pregnancy, the plot line with Ed's uh, movie script that he can't write, and in this next scene, um, Shelley still very hungry. Uh, you know, he's got the... Uh, got the munchies, I guess, the pregnancy urges. What would you call this? Yeah. Yeah. There's, you know, the impractical urge to eat strange food combinations. She just has this, them. This weird appetite. Yeah, the appetite, strange combinations. And she's like eating food off of Marilyn's uh, plate in the brick. And she mentions something about um, Marilyn uh, entering into a dance contest. Um, and uh, so that that's another plot line that 
will be um, resolved later. Um, and almost immediately after, actually, it's in the very same shot. Whenever Shelly leaves the table, uh, Wayne mm-hmm. enters the bar. And that's how we get introduced with Wayne. But before we jump ahead that far, I do want to mention uh, quickly about the 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 Maryland plot line. It's, it's not a huge plot line in this episode, but it does come back. Um, and uh, Shelly... Shelly says something like, uh, she asks Marilyn if Marilyn can teach her the hippity hop. Uh, I guess that's a dance. Yeah, yeah. Like the, the 90s dance. Oh, do you know the hippity hop? Are you familiar? I don't know the hippity hop, but I do know <laughs> that like, it was yeah, a dance. Yeah, famous sure. in the 90s. I, 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 I recognize it. that it was a dance move like the, okay. you know, the Charleston or something. Yeah, I didn't do much research on that, but um, I did notice in this episode, um, it, I think it's around this scene, Shelly's earrings. She always has very uh, flashy earrings. Um, mm-hmm. Her earrings in this in this sequence or in parts of this episode are flamingos with uh, sort of like the upper body is like a flamingo and the lower body is uh, sort of like a ballet dancer legs. So it's, you know, in the theme of the dancing competition. I thought they were the legs of the flamingo. I didn't even realize they weren't. They have like ballet shoes on and stuff, but they're, they look oh, like flamingo, neat. like long slender flamingo legs. But yeah, keep an eye out for, um, for Shelly's earrings. They're always uh, sometimes relevant. Oh yeah. So, I think that, yeah, yeah, you're right. Within the scene, we're introduced to Wayne, who he's wearing a varsity jacket, and immediately, I think that's supposed to show the audience that we're not supposed to like him because back because in, in the 1990s, back in the day. <laughs> yeah, that's how you showed that someone was a jock back then. Was like you just put him in a varsity jacket. That guy's a total and a jock is like negative, like tool in the 90s. You'd say, yeah. Well, this character particularly hot headed. Yeah, yeah, but we get introduced to him and we can tell right off the bat that we're not supposed to like him. He's just very you know. egocentric, very hot headed, full of himself. And, um, just to speed things along, this is the scene where at the end of the scene, it is revealed that, uh, Shelly is married to him. It's sort of the reveal. And that's how this, the scene closes. I think Holling drops like a dish or something in re- in reaction. And then it cuts to the next scene. Um, which, if you'll permit me, <laughs> I just want to keep rolling because yeah, yeah, we're please. still in the beginning and then another plot line is introduced. Uh, mm-hmm. Rick is, um, see, uh, I guess he's getting a checkup for insurance reasons. He um, is. The, yeah, he referenced it because he has to fly for all over Alaska and I think that he's at his time of the year where they just, they require you to do a checkup for insurance mm-hmm. purposes. So he's naked on Joel's examination table. Just Half naked. I mean... Half naked, half naked. <laughs> Got to keep it uh, Got PG, sh- it's on CBS. Sh- shirtless, Rick. <laughs> yeah, and Joel is examining him, and then Joel finds out that he has a tumor. Uh, I wouldn't go that far. Is there? He doesn't identify a tumor. He, he just finds a little growth on his chest, right? Like a little a mole, which Rick conflates uh, to being a tumor. Uh, and Joel's like, well, you know, I've seen this a lot in my line of work and you shouldn't be worried like one in a thousand chance. Um, but well, Rick, yeah, go ahead. Hang on. Uh, I think that you're right that it only happens one in a thousand chance. That's what Joel says. But I think he means that it's one in a thousand chance that it's malignant. Uh, I think yes, that yeah. it's a benign it's a tumor. Benign. I think, mm-hmm. I think he identifies that it is a tumor. Is the, think, is the definition of tumor just like, like a mole is a tumor. Is that what you're trying, yeah, what you're trying yeah, to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what okay. I'm trying to say. If, Sorry, I should have No, it's okay. I, I, I'm, if that's the definition, I didn't realize it. But yeah, going by that definition, yeah, he, he's got a benign tumor, as Joel says. Uh, but Rick insists that they uh, do a test on it immediately because um, a little plot line that I, I didn't realize 
I didn't think it would be so heavily heavily referenced. Mm. Yeah. A little plot line that has been developing throughout this season uh, is that Maggie has a, has a past of boyfriends dying on her. It's, it's uh, confirmed in this episode that Maggie, uh, I believe Rick says, um, Maggie and I have been together almost a year now. Okay. So you know that before me, there were a few others, Joel. Well, she's not exactly a kid. I mean, I'm not the first to go. Oh, I'm not one of those do-do-do-do-do-do. I'm not saying this has anything to do with anything, but guys die on her. That's a fact. Rick does, there's a lot of great um, Rick acting in this episode. You know, we don't, yeah, get, a lot, yeah. don't get a lot of Rick. Uh, maybe maybe in the first episode we get a little bit of that, but I'm, I'm, I'm really digging it in this episode. Yeah, so I forgot about that plot line. Well, not that plot line, just that, characterization of Maggie entirely that, that her, she has all of her past boyfriends past. have all uh, died died through in, in maybe not terrible horrific, mistakes but yeah just like strange she's had a lot of boyfriends that die on her I guess which is which is strange and she always defends it by saying like it wasn't me at all yeah, they she's went a off little and did their de- own things she's a little too defensive of it. it yeah yeah um what was I gonna say oh just speaking of yeah, we. I don't. Even, I, I kind of lost track of how many different plot lines there are in this episode. Which, uh, you know, from last episode, as we said, um, last episode had two or three plot lines, but they all sort of um, fit closely with the main plot. This one has a lot of different moving parts. Uh, some are small, some are larger. But mm-hmm. um, definitely want to throw props to this episode was actually written by the showrunners um, Joshua Brand and uh, John Falsey. By the way, R.I.P. They passed away. Well, uh, John Falsey passed away um, this year in January. I actually didn't realize that until a couple weeks ago. Oh, um, wow. Definitely RIP. This is, again, you know, uh, they, they've they've uh, run a few different shows. I mean, I guess I had mentioned St. Elsewhere, um, mm-hmm. obviously Northern Exposure being the one I'm most familiar with. Uh, another show called I'll Fly Away, which apparently had uh, great reviews. I think it was a show that began in 92 maybe. So either during the run of Northern Exposure, they started working on another show, I'll Fly Away, or um, or maybe it was right as Northern Exposure. No, because Northern Exposure went... It went yeah, until 1995, to 90, I want to say. 95 or yeah. 94, yeah. It's not uncommon for showrunners to... They don't abandon their original show, but they'll just go on and work on another... Um, yeah, they kind of... Uh, another pilot or just starting up another show and they'll just try to work on both of them. I yeah. think that... Uh, Vince, Vince Gilligan, I want to say that's his name for Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. He did that often. He would break away from Breaking Bad and he would go start mm-hmm. another show that none of them are as success, successful as Breaking Bad. Right. But it's just not uncommon, not uncommon for that to happen. Anyway, the reason I bring up all that, um, the different things going on there is because, uh, I feel like, you know, might want to pay some respects to John Falsey and go back and I, I might watch, uh, I'll fly away at some point. It sounds like it's got, I think it's pretty short. It's maybe shorter than, definitely shorter than Northern Exposure. So mm. I might, might try to, um, we'll make a tribute episode to him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you're right though. There is four different plot lines that we're trying to juggle throughout this entire episode and not all of them are interconnected. Like they're, some yeah. of them are just not at all related. Yeah. Like Ed, so, Ed's, Ed's plot line, Marilyn's plot line. They're, they're kind of like, uh, secondary to the main plot of uh, of the Shelley. I, I would say Shelley um, and Hauling are sort of the main plot. Yeah, I would say so too. But 
the strange thing is that most of the time when this happens, all the plot lines will converge at right. least on theme. Mm-hmm. This one doesn't converge on yeah, theme. Not it's necessarily, really, yeah. Yeah, it's only uh, Joe and Maggie and Holly and Shelling do they come together in theme, and then the other two are just left adrift. And I, I know I said that those types of episodes, which you just referenced, are, are sort of my favorite um, workings of Northern Exposure, but uh, um, I also really like this episode. I like that there's so many things going on, um, and perhaps it's that element of Northern Exposure that I said was sort of like the character-driven elements uh, where you know we get to see a lot of uh, stories about characters um, doing their own thing, you know, separate yeah, from yeah, Joel, yeah. from Dr. Joel's not the yeah. center of the universe in this episode. So I wanted to talk about conflict within this episode because I think that Maggie and Rick and Shelly and Holling are both having their own problems with mm-hmm. their relationships, hence the name of the title of the episode. But yeah, so it seems that Wayne is trying to win back Shelly. Yeah, so the character, um, the character of Wayne, well, he he um, he starts off by saying that he's trying to, uh, I guess, is it called annulment? He's trying to basically divorce Shelley because he wants to marry Shelley's best friend, uh, Cindy. Yeah, he's trying to annul the marriage, but I, but it does I don't evolve, know. evolves into him. We, we we really get to see his true colors. He actually, it turns out, it seems like he really does want to get back together with Shelley. I guessed it from the start of the episode that he right. actually wanted to get back with Shelly. Because mm-hmm. they're kind of playful argument. Um. Right. Well, you know, to be honest, I'm not a fan of how Shelly was being written this episode because she she's really just an object for men to obtain. Like she's either yeah. going to be obtained by Wayne mm-hmm. or she's going to be obtained by Holling. Uh, and further down the episode, Wayne constantly makes references to her body or like the, the way that she's attractive. Yeah, he actually uh, compares her to the curves on a Stanley Cup, I guess, because yeah. he's such a hockey player. We just got to drill that in in case you missed Wait, it. S- side note, he is uh-huh. really into hockey. Every reference that he has yeah. uh, is a hockey reference. Hat tricks, mm-hmm. um, slap shot slap into shot. the net. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's super into hockey. But yeah, uh, further down the episode, I think that he tells Shelly that the reason he wants her so much is because of how attractive she is now. And Shelly doesn't take offense to that. There's just... Yeah, uh, I mean, you're right. I mean, unfortunately, I think in most of the episodes that she's featured, Shelly is kind of written as an object. Um, And in fact, we kind of mentioned... uh, the Bechdel test in one of our past episodes, uh, mm-hmm. there was a conversation between Shelly and Maggie. Um, and there's another one in this episode, actually, because um, Shelly and Holling, uh, Holling suggests they, they, they do a, sort of a split um, until the divorce comes through. Um, because I guess Holling has uh, some, uh, it, he has some issues with uh, being involved with a married woman. So, so Shelly ends up staying over at Maggie's house and they have another, uh, um, heart to heart, you know, girl talk night. Right. Right. And it, it's, it's slightly reminiscent of, um, dream schemes, putting greens, but I think, I think it's a little better, better, like more well-written than that episode. But I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I don't think this scene necessarily passes the Bechtel test either. Really quickly. The Bechtel test is a theory proposed by Alison Bechtel, where in movies, television shows, really any medium format, if two, female characters are on screen and they're talking, 
But if they only talk about their relationships, particularly with men, then it fails the Bechtel test. Yeah. Which surprisingly, a large number of movies and television shows have failed it. Yeah. But I mean, it's even, not concrete. Even great uh, feminist works of film um, may not pass the Bechtel test 100%, but it's just an interesting sort of a sort of meter, I guess. Yeah, to exactly. Test a, to test a scene on. Mm-hmm. Um, well, do yeah, you want to talk well, about that scene real fast? The I, I do, I do. Let's talk about it. I like the relationship that Shelly and Maggie have going on, like a big sister, little sister scenario. And yeah. I think she says that she doesn't have a sister, right? She just has two brothers. Um, Maggie, that is. Yeah, well, I, mean, I remember in the uh, last episode, um, Maggie wishes she had a had Elaine as a sister. It was, yeah. was a reference because she, she didn't grow up with any sisters. So yeah, she's got Shelly as a sister now and having like a girl sleep overnight where she's obviously not staying with Pauling. And as you mentioned, Rick, uh, Maggie has her own troubles with Rick. So they're kind of airing out their grievances to each other. It does. But I like the little exchange that they have with each other while Maggie's setting up the futon for Shelly. Doesn't make much sense, does it? Men don't make sense. They think they do, but they don't. You know who makes sense? Girls? Nobody. Nobody makes any sense. But at least we females have the good sense to know that, and we don't go around getting all bent out of shape about everything. That's one of my favorite exchanges within there, um, on two levels. One is that, obviously, you think that based on the symmetry of the sentence, you think that she's going to reply back with girls because she's talking Mm -hmm. about men. But she says that nobody makes any sense, which reveals a lot about her character, where she's acknowledging that we all have our own problems or we're not perfect. So we need to realize that where Shelly's still a little immature and she, she kind of still thinks that there's like a fundamental dynamic difference between the genders, which there are to a degree that you could argue, but not necessarily. So for the problems that life's throw at us. Yeah. And I guess also very informative of Maggie's character and, you know, she, um, I mean, I guess Joel is, it's more of a characteristic of Joel of like not trusting anyone, but um, I'm not trying to say Maggie doesn't trust anybody, but she sort of has reinvented herself uh, in Alaska. Um, we don't know too, too much about Maggie's backstory yet, um, but she she's not from Sicily. She's not from Alaska. So she kind of moved to the wilderness and created her own life. Um, maybe, maybe this isn't out of distrust of other people, but um, you know, she's kind of like looking out for herself, you know, a lot. Well, hang on. Let's get into that. Yeah. That's a really interesting thing that you're saying, that she's really only looking out for herself. Because while that may be true, I think that even deeper within that, she doesn't necessarily like that character trait of hers. And the reason I say this is because the conflict that she has with Rick this episode is that Rick doesn't trust her. Yeah. Because Mm -hmm. Maggie has a history of having men die on her. Yeah. All all of her past boyfriends, I guess, of of late have, have died while they were together. Yeah. And Rick is planning a trip to Fairbanks, uh, quote unquote, a business trip. But Maggie sees through it. She just sees that he's just trying to get away from her. Yeah. So, he's, he's trying to, he's actually going to try to see a specialist. Um, mm-hmm. And it's actually interesting because both uh, Maggie and Rick kind of hold up appearances as if it's like, oh yeah, it's a business trip. Couldn't have been avoided. You know, just one of those things um, mm-hmm. where, where in truth they both actually really know that, you know, Rick is, um, afraid and he's going to try, you know, under, undercover go to, where is it? Fairbanks. Right. Yeah. Fairbanks, Alaska. 
And if Maggie was really secure in, well, not secure, but just having that characteristic of wanting to fend for herself, I don't think she would have taken such offense to Rick leaving her like that. Uh, what I do think, you mean? I think that deep down from my understanding of the characterization of Maggie is that she she does want to be with somebody that can always be with her. She doesn't want to be alone. Mm-hmm. Um, not in the sense of like just intimate partnership. I don't mean it like that way. I mean that she really does want a life partner. She really does want someone to stand by her, but her outward characteristic would give off the impression that she wants to stand alone. But I, I think with this conflict that she's having with Rick reveals a lot of her deeper motivations. How so? Well, if she was truly comfortable being by herself, wouldn't she have been fine with Rick leaving her? Um, I mean, does well, that fly with you? I, well, I don't know if it's, well, I will say this, um, this sort of resolution of this, uh, this conflict between Rick and Maggie is that they do get the test results in and it is a benign tumor or it's like, it's just like a little mole. It's, it's revealed that there is no cancer. There's no, you know, malignancy. Um, and everyone's relieved, but immediately, uh, Maggie breaks up with Rick, essentially. She's like, you're done. You're finished. You're out of here, right? Which is a funny scene, yeah. Yeah. Uh, because she's talking about how they're going to grow stronger together. This yeah. is just another bump in the road. <laughs> a bridge over troubled waters. <laughs> yes, that's the uh, expression she uses. And immediately, whenever they hear that he's in the clear, she says, like, uh, we're out. We're Basically, because he didn't trust her. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I'm not really sure if I'm picking up what you're laying down, but in, in this scenario... Uh, Maggie does choose the solo route. I mean, she's, she's kind of been, she feels like she's been slandered or she's been kind of hurt by this um, mistrust of Rick. Like Rick believes that she's killing him uh, maybe indirectly and it doesn't fly for her, you know? So she chooses the solo path. It seems. Oh, I see what you mean. That's a different interpretation, but yeah, there's definitely um, Maggie is one of obviously, you know, sort of a lead of this show and she's got a very interesting character. It's, it's interesting to me that, um, I mean, I've seen the show, but it's interesting that we're six episodes in and we don't know too much about her backstory yet. Um, we may not get too much of it in this first season, but I'd be excited um, to kind of revisit these thoughts about her, her kind of psyche once we, once know, we know more. Go ahead. You know, now that I think about it, for some of the townsfolks, uh, we don't know why they're in Sicily. Of yeah. all places. And it doesn't I seem like any of them were born here. I think maybe Ed, we kind of get the sense that he's been around just because he's native, maybe Maryland yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say that. I think some of the townsfolks were born geographically in this location. Ed, Maryland, I believe Maurice would have been around this area. Maybe not. I think no, there's talks of him not. He seems to have actually. come here and he's he's brought his money here to sort of uh, you're right, you're right. expand. And like it's, uh, what is it? North to the future. The Alaska is the final frontier, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. So um, he's an outsider for sure. He's an outsider, but Chris and Maggie are definitely outsiders and we don't have an explanation on what brought them to this town. Yeah. Maybe we'll get yeah. some of that, but um, yeah. uh, well... Let's uh let's uh back off of uh these plot lines for a second. Let's go back mm-hmm. to um Ed. Ed's uh daydreams because we get another daydream in this episode. Um a couple more daydreams. Um uh so the 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 next one we see is uh I think Ed is just sitting outside, maybe outside 
out front of the brick or something and he sees uh, Joel and Chris crossing the street. There's a couple of dogs running and they're chatting to each There's other. There's always animals on the streets. Yeah. Every... <laughs> okay, wait, hang on, hang Does on. Does that offend you? <laughs> it doesn't offend me. I'm just... Sur- like, the townsfolk give little to no care about that. Earlier in the episode, I think in the first five minutes, there were sheep on the street too. Sheep? I did not catch that. Yeah, there were sheep on the street. Was wait, that in the on. daydream sequence or... No, no, no. It was just just, um, just Sicily, Alaska. Just Sicily, Alaska. I, I I did write this down though. This is the first episode that Joel actually pets one of the dogs that's in the street though. Is it in this sequence? Whenever yeah, he's it watching is. him? Okay, yeah. There's well, a, those yeah. dogs on the streets. He, yeah. he bends down to pet the dog and he goes along with his way. All right. Like, so uh, we get, you know, as we said, Joel is sort of adapting and acclimating to this yeah. uh, <laughs> to the Sicilian lifestyle. Um, anyway, this, this sort of... Uh, sequence that Ed watches play out in Sicily uh, turns into this daydream, uh, essentially becomes a scene from Midnight Cowboy and Joel is doing his best Dustin Hoffman impression. <laughs> hey! Hey! I'm trying to hear! I'm trying to hear! You don't talk to a learned physician that way! Same to you, pal! I can't wait to get that jerk in the examining room. I gotta bury a animal with his name on it. I didn't catch that reference. I actually still have never seen Midnight Cowboy, and I'm really embarrassed. I, I want to watch it, but have you seen this movie? Or <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the pretty much what happens in that. Oh wait, yeah. Also in the in that sort of dream sequence, uh, Joel mentions, or like you know his his Dustin Hoffman character mentions that he's going to take Chris to go see Donald Trump or something like that. He's like, yeah, I know Donald Trump. I, I got him started in the business. Yeah. So we can never escape Donald Trump, <laughs> even if we go back to the 90s television series. Well, he was still like a big figure back in the 90s as well. Yeah, so like, he you know, pop culture so icon if, of sorts. Yeah, an, an influential figure within that world, especially if you're talking about New York, mm-hmm. he's kind of synonymous with it. Like Woody Allen is synonymous with yeah. New York back in the 90s. Now, not so much, but back then it was. Uh, uh, I do like one of the, I do like the dream sequence that follows after that. Yeah. Tell where, us about it. This is the, I guess it's the last one, right? Cause he doesn't really have, he has three dream sequences. Am I right? Yeah. That is the last one. You're right. Uh, first of all, do you know what it's referencing? Cause I actually don't, I don't, you know, I don't think it, I don't think it's directly referencing anything. I didn't think so either. Yeah. I think it was just a generic cowboy, like a Western plot. type thing, but uh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Tell us what happens. Yeah. So Wayne, before the dream sequence happens, uh, Wayne and Shelly are trying to make Holling jealous, so they start mm-hmm. dancing in the bar really close. And Ed, oh, has a dream actually, sequence. sorry, yeah. could I uh, yeah. interject because I don't want to skip over this. It's earlier, but it is part of the um, Wayne Holling Shelly triangle. Um, I do want to just slip it in because it's probably my favorite cinematography, like my favorite shot in this episode. Uh-huh. Um, early on, we cut to the brick, and it's actually we cut into. Um, a very tight close-up of Wayne. He's in profile and he's drinking, you know, beer from a mug or something. Um, and the background is all blown out with the the white window, like the sunlight coming in. Very tight on Wayne. He looks off screen and we get this shot of uh, a mirror and Shelly is uh, in the mirror. We can see her. She's like waitressing in the background mm-hmm. and the camera tilts down, revealing that the mirror is above the bar and uh, hauling is at the bar, kind of like bartending. So it's just like very interesting use of the space, like the geography, the camera shooting through the mirror, sort of like a point glance from Wayne watching Shelley and then tilting down to hauling. Um, and actually that whole sequence 
is really interesting because we get a lot of backstory of Wayne and Shelly and uh, Hauling. And, and I, I find it uh, kind of strange, but interesting how like Hauling and Wayne, uh, Wayne kind of talks to Hauling as if he's a bartender and not um, the father of his ex-girlfriend's child. Like they're kind of, all, they're kind of just friendly and, and respectful, almost buddies. Yeah. Wait, first of all, um, Wayne is 20 years old. Yeah. How is he drinking? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't even think about that. No one, no one thought about that. I mean, the drinking age was 21, right? Yeah. It was, um, they put the drinking age in 1984. I want to say, <laughs> I didn't understand hell? that. I don't know if they're how like is Sicily, this on, Alaska. How is this on TV? This is against the law. I know. Well, maybe there's some sort of weird <laughs> local law that's like, ah, uh, the Sicily, Alaska is actually annexed to the United States of America. <laughs> like, they don't follow their laws. <laughs> you could be drinking like uh, O'Doyle's or, or Duels or whatever. Like, not Oh, you're right. Uh, you're right. We did not. You just told them not. it was beer. <laughs> believed it. We did not roll that out. Uh, second, it's. I do remember that shot you're talking about yeah. um, before. I, I do want to talk about what you were saying about the characterizations between Wayne and Holling. But before I get into that, I wanted to ask you, why do you think they started with a close-up shot of Wayne drinking um, the illegal beer? Um, <laughs> sorry, the illegal. <laughs> um, I don't know why they chose that as a shot uh, textually, but I think in the edit, it's a, it's an, it's an easy cut point because uh, you don't see any backgrounds really. It's just like, um, it's easy to cut to just like a singular shot of one thing. And that one thing is Wayne. Um, and we sort of, uh, you know, get more of an establishing shot. I think the following shot is an interesting choice because, uh, it sort of, um, combines everything into one space, uh, without having Shelly like she doesn't have to physically be right next to them. She can be really far away, sort of like this thought in Wayne's head, you know, almost, mm -hmm. but still visually be uh, present in this conversation between Holling and Wayne uh, simply by being portrayed through a mirror because the mirror shows her, even though she's really far away, the mirror is really close to both of them, you know? Right. So we get to kind of like fit all of this information into uh, a single camera angle, you know, single, a single take. Okay, so I get what you're saying. It's kind of like starting out with a blank sheet of paper, essentially, mm -hmm. when yeah. you start out with the close-up mm -hmm. of it, and you're able to write and draw in all of the rest of the imagery. Okay, that makes sense, because that really was an interesting interesting shot, and it caught my attention. So, yeah, about the characterization that Wayne and Holling are having with each other, yeah, he kind of just treats them as a, um, like an employee of the bar. Like, there's no anim uh, true animosity between them from what I'm able to read. Yeah, and they are talking openly about I think Wayne says like he's very upset that he couldn't get Shelly pregnant, like they, he couldn't have been the father of Shelly's child. And he's kind of saying it directly to Holling, who is, you know, the father of Shelly's child. I guess we'll figure out it's a hysterical pregnancy, as Joel says. But still, I just I found it a little strange that they could be kind of they're not necessarily buddies, but they're mm -hmm. respectful to each other, which is interesting. Yeah, I, I think that's a very interesting development between their two, though. Isn't this, uh, this is where Holling still has a problem with it though, because he gets that neck crink when he watches those two dance. Yeah. So this is, I don't know if it's this scene, but, uh, is this a scene where, um, where Ed has his daydream or. Yeah, I believe it is. Yeah. So where, what's, tell us about this plot development with, uh, Holling. Yeah. So before Holling gets that neck crink of his, um, 
Shelly is finding it absurd that Holling won't allow her to live with him because she's married to Wayne. So just to ride along with it, she decides to, to dance with Wayne try, to, make to, kind of, try to make them jealous. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And they started getting really close to, uh, to each other on the dance floor. And oh, and dancing. their song we should mention is a Motley Crue, uh, song without you. That's kind of their song. Oh, is that what it was? Their like special song, Wayne and Shelly. Yeah. It's played a, oh. a few times in this episode. It is. I just never recognized it. So Ed finds this very interesting. He goes into a dream sequence. and I like his dream sequence a lot because Maurice goes and steps in and he tells. Oh, well, so wait, set, us up, set us up from the beginning. Yeah. So we're going to go in and it's a uh, saloon doors like those old fashioned ones that go back and forth and it just busts wide open. Maurice kicks in and he says, drop the girl. Oh, wait, so, so Wayne and Shelly are dancing, but uh, Wayne is sort of like this, uh, evil cowboy shooter kid with like all black leather. Shelly kind of looks like she's like a little house on the prairie. And Maurice, as you said, breaks in, tries to break it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you're, you're right. Um, that is the setup to it. And he, he tries to break it up. And Wayne replies back that, you know, that he's not even with her anymore. And Maurice, Maurice says, is not even with her, right? Maurice is not with her. And then he says, well, me and Holling, we don't pack an iron anymore. And, uh, and then he punches him straight in his face, knocks him to the ground. And then I think the dream sequence ends right there. But what I found something interesting is that pack an iron is not an expression. Uh, you don't think so? I thought, no, I thought I, it means like, like packing heat or like, you know, carry an iron, like iron as a gun. I tried Googling it every which way and I could not find something for it. Weird. So, well, it, yeah, it definitely clocks for me. Like it, it translates to me, like I know what he's, we know what he's talking about, right? Yeah, we know what he's saying on context clues. They no longer have any animosity between us, but I always thought it was a very interesting expression to use. Oh, no, 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 no. I think you might have uh, misheard this because um, really? I, I think Maurice is saying that uh, Hauling doesn't shoot guns anymore because this is like a little bit of a backstory that hasn't been uh, super developed with Hauling, but it, but it is... Um, starting to be developed throughout a number of episodes that we've seen. Holling used to be sort of a big game hunter and he doesn't, he doesn't hunt animals anymore. He just takes photos of them. He's a photographer. Um, sort of like, you remember how in, in, um, the, uh, the Russian flu, he's a photographer. He takes the picture of, uh, Joel and Elaine together. This, as I said, this has not been fully, um, explicitly developed, but it is sort of this, uh, underlying, um, exposition with Holling's character. And, and I think this line that Maurice says is referencing that Holling uh, doesn't carry a gun anymore. So Maurice is here to kind of like do the, to stick up for his, now it seems that, you know, Maurice is, is friend, buddy, buddy with Holling now, though they used to have this sort of love triangle with Shelly. And in the dream sequence, I guess Maurice just punches out Wayne yeah, for, okay, I completely misread that then because I'm missing some exposition on yeah. Holling, which honestly, I thought he was just a guy with the camera in last yeah. episode. I didn't well, even realize he was a photographer. I will I say- I also didn't even realize he hunted. I'm almost certain uh, that in at least one of the episodes, they mentioned this. I know for sure that in a deleted scene, it's mentioned in the first or second episode, um, but we, we weren't talking about deleted scenes yeah. back then. But- uh, but it, that is info I wish I had then, because I would have made the scene a lot more different than the way I just now interpreted it. Yeah. Um, well, that's okay. I mean, this, again, this is your first time watching, so it's good to hear sort of like what 
what does translate and what is a little confusing because, you know, I have to kind of try to defend the show. I'm like, oh yeah, I know this, but obviously this is something that hasn't really been explicitly explained uh, very much about Halling, though we mm-hmm. will get it um, pretty soon, I think, his, his sort of backstory with hunting and how he stopped hunting animals. Oh, okay. Well, I want to defend myself a little bit here by saying that I do that line pack and iron works both ways. The way that, uh, the way that Mm -hmm. you're saying that it's working in context and the way that I'm saying it works. Yeah. I agree. Context. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, it is, the scene is also a way of showing that at least in Ed's daydream, um, Maurice and Holling have come to terms and are buddy, buddy now, like Maurice is sticking up for (laughs) Holling. I like the, yeah. I, the reason I like that is because of that perceived notion that they're friends now, but in, I think when the scene plays out, it doesn't go that way. Um, Holling just gets a neck crink. Uh, yeah. That. He gets like a crick in his neck. Uh, just this weird spasm that develops. Uh, I don't know. It's because, uh, it's because they're dancing together, right? Shelly and Wayne, it just kind of triggers this reaction. Yeah. Anytime they, I think the thought of losing Shelly triggers that neck crane because I think further down the episode, Shelly talks about, I think just in passing, what if she went away and then he gets the neck crank again? So it's definitely triggered by that. Mm. And and so he's he ends up seeing Joel. Uh, there's a little doctor's office uh, scene between the two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's actually an interesting, uh, I thought it was an interesting way to end a scene, but uh, Hauling asks Joel, what would you do if Elaine showed up with her husband? Um, and Joel has no way of answering it. He's like, uh, you know, that, that's all, that's hard to answer. Like that that kind of thing doesn't happen in New York. Well, I mean, it does, but it doesn't. And you know, Joel's unable to give him a straight answer. Yeah, and it's actually very interesting because you're contextualizing it now, where you're saying, well, what if this happens specifically to you, and then you have to re-examine it because it actually is. If you try to play it out within your own life, that is a strange thing to happen to be able to say like, uh. What if the person you were with, you know, literally is married, like it just belongs to someone else Mm -hmm. through the context of marriage. So I think that's a very interesting tactic that Holling employs onto Joel to be able to see, have him see the plight of his situation. And we were just talking a little bit about deleted scenes. There are deleted scenes and bloopers uh, for this episode. Um, Mm -hmm. But I don't think there's, there's not really a whole lot, um, that I would characterize actually as deleted scenes. It seems it's just more sort of like extensions that were cut short, uh, maybe for sort of like trimming the fat on scenes, maybe in the edit they were cutting down on time or they were trying to get the pacing a little faster. Um, most of the deleted scenes aren't truly separate scenes. Um, I think there's one that we can talk, I'll save that for a little bit later. It, it ties into another plot line. Okay. Um, well, yeah, you're right on that. Because I think one of the deleted scenes was Joel talking with Rick. That's the one I want to talk about. Let's get there now. That's yeah. the one you want to talk yeah. about? Yeah, you want to talk about that now? Yeah, I think that that might have actually been pivotal in this episode. Yeah. Would you agree with that? No, yeah. I think it's, uh, well, I don't know. I mean, obviously we we understood the episode without it, but um, it does really inform Joel's uh, Joel's intentions in this episode. Exactly. That's what I thought was missing in here. And I was wondering why the characters were reacting that way. So, so essentially to back yeah, it up, let's yeah, let's set it up. Joel is approaching Rick 
uh, just out. Well, let's actually like, talk about before we get there because I want to talk about what the episode has, and then the deleted scenes explains what happens in the episode, right? So let me talk. Let me talk directly, <laughs> so we're not confusing anybody. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so there's a scene in this episode. It's not deleted. It's in the episode. Joel uh, finds Maggie, who's getting a haircut, and um, he essentially. Uh, asks her out on a date, uh, not not formally, but he's like, "Hey, I'm going to this powwow that Marilyn's going to be dancing at. Would you like to come?" And uh, I found it interesting because uh, they are pretty amicable in this episode. But you know, they're overall. I don't I don't think Joel would ask Maggie to go to a powwow with him. He might ask Ed or Chris or you know. It's just like I, I don't think he wants. There's nothing in this episode, uh, and spe- especially nothing in the previous couple episodes that suggest that Joel would want to hang out with Maggie. However, the deleted scene is um, Joel and Rick. Uh, Rick is just about to leave town. He's in his truck and he says, hey, Joel, um, I'm going out of town. I'm supposed to take Maggie to this powwow. Would you take her for me? So that informs uh, why Joel would actually go ask Maggie to, is that what you're getting at? Yeah, that's what I was getting at. And I would say that's the information that's missing that Mm -hmm. makes the viewer very confused. Because would, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I did think it was kind of strange how Joel was so forward in asking Maggie, to be honest, when I was watching this episode. And it wasn't until I saw the deleted scene that explained the context that I understood. It's like, oh, Rick explicitly had asked Joel yeah. to do this. But by cutting out that scene, um, it seems like it's more of uh, just out of Joel's kindness and like his heart that he decided to ask Maggie. And it, while it is a little... Um, atypical, like it's not uh, what his character would normally do. You know, we don't necessarily need that scene to explain it. If it happens, it happens. Like, I'll buy it. It's not, they haven't been like at each other's throats the whole episode. So it doesn't seem, uh, at least in the um, context of this episode, it doesn't seem completely far-fetched that Joel would would not ask, um, or Joel would ask, would ask Maggie to the powwow. It's just like a little out of line of the show Bible overall, but um I'll buy it. Like, I don't necessarily need that scene in there. Yeah. Also, that scene also explains Rick's hesitancy in staying with Maggie. It also establishes that. Because yes. he, mm-hmm. he acknowledges that he's not actually going to Fairbanks for business. And yeah, that. he reveals it. I mean, that that becomes revealed uh, later, you know, as a, as more of a reveal. But in, in this deleted scene, he out front says it. He's like, I'm going to Fairbanks to see a specialist. Right. Don't tell Maggie, um, take her to the powwow for me, something like that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually very important to have because beforehand we only had it from Maggie's perspective. And as a viewer, we can't take it 100% for sure that she is right. Like perhaps she's paranoid. Mm-hmm. Maybe mm-hmm. she's thinking too much into it, but this scene outright says it. So bef- I, th- yeah, I think that this deleted scene, in my opinion, shouldn't have actually been deleted. Yeah. I mean, I wonder how long it was. It was probably less than a minute, but... Um, it was less than a minute, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, we got a, a couple little things to kind of tie up here. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's try to get through with... Um, oh, I... I <laughs> so I just want to talk about this. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a, a scene between... I think it might be the scene where Shelly finally tells Wayne, like, look... I kind of want the divorce. You should get out of here. We shouldn't mm-hmm. keep on like this. I love hauling. Um, but at the beginning of the scene, uh, Wayne orders a burger and uh, Shelly uh, calls out um, a, to the to the cook, Dave. Oh, yeah. So we get introduced actually to the cook in, in uh, the brick. His name is Dave. Yeah, uh, I don't he, think he's ever been named before. He hasn't been named, I don't think, before this episode. He is a recurring character 
um, and will continue to be. However, the actor will change. This is not uh, Dave Ooh. 100%. I, I, we, we should keep an eye out on Dave. because I'm not Dave 1.0. Yeah. <laughs> we should keep an eye out and see when he actually does his uh, metamorphosis. But, um, <laughs> but she, the order she calls out is a burger horns off. Do you know what that means? So um, I'm obsessed with diner lingo and there's no, what I could find, it doesn't have any sort of translation, but uh, my only guess would be um, this would be uh, a way of calling out a hamburger, uh, not a moose burger. A moose burger would be horns on. Oh, <laughs> I'm okay. assuming in the fictional, you know, menu of the brick. There's a lot of things in this episode, and we talked about this before, but I'm telling you, man, a lot of little expressions that just, they're not real. They're yeah. kind of real. It exists, I mean, it exists in this fictional world, you know? It's the yeah. world building. <laughs> I, I think details. really quickly, I think that Wayne has an expression too that he says, where Shelly's saying that Wayne wore a hat trick to the game, and you don't wear a hat trick. You you can say he did a hat, a hat trick. trick. Is a, yeah. What does she, what does Shelly say? She says you wore one. Yeah. She said that Wayne wore a hat trick to the hockey game. What I think what they meant to say is that he did a hat he trick. Hat trick, trick means to score three. It, it means to score three goals three by one row, player yeah. in hockey. Yeah. That's a hat trick. So wearing a hat trick doesn't make any, any sense. Well, maybe that's more of like how, uh, you know, in, in this episode, Shelly misuses the, um, horseshoes, you know? Oh yeah, that's true. Um, I mean, she's just really bad with expressions. Yeah, bad with the they're trying to they're trying to set that up as her one of her character traits, just bad at <laughs> idioms. Yeah. Um, in this scene, when they break up, it's essentially sort of like a callback to Casablanca because she says something like, "At least, at least we'll have Saskatchewan." You know, we didn't, we did it before. Now, what's you know the quote from Casablanca? Yeah, we'll always have Paris. <laughs> um. Oh. Uh, I'm all out of order. I'm just looking at my notes, but we should mention that um, whenever, I think we wrapped up this storyline, but I'm going back to it. Whenever <laughs> Maggie and Rick are waiting on the results of the test. Yeah. Um, we didn't really dive into that. No, it's okay. Well, I just want to touch on two quick things. Uh, they're getting the results of the biopsy from Dr. Serrano, who mm -hmm. was in the last episode on the phone. He was the doctor that Joel is trying to contact for the Russian flu. He needs yeah. the vats of chicken soup airlifted from Brooklyn and these <laughs> nurses and stuff to come to Sicily immediately. Same doctor, Dr. Serrano. He must be the doctor over in Anchorage or something, the big city. Um, yeah. Uh, my gut instinct is, is Dr. Serrano the very first doctor he talked to in the pilot? He doesn't talk to a doctor in the pilot, does he? He talks to Pete Gilliam, who's the uh, travel you're right, manager. You're right, you're right, you're I call right. him the travel agent, but he's some sort the of travel agent. some sort you're of. Right. Like, For some reason, in my mind, I thought he was the, uh, a doctor working at the hospital. But no, you're entirely right. Yeah, he is that character. Joel does spend a lot of uh, time on the phone, I guess, in this series, uh, so it can get confusing. Um, this, I have no idea where we're going to stick this, but uh, there's another character that is sort of a recurring character. Um, it's not in this episode, so <laughs> maybe it's not even worth mentioning, but she comes up a couple times. Uh, it's someone who calls into the radio station. That happened this episode? No, that's what I'm saying. It's, uh, it's not oh, okay. in this episode. Sorry. It's just like a recurring <laughs> character that's off screen, sort of like Dr. Serrano. And I wanted to pay, uh, pay note to it, but... Uh, I, we've kind of missed our chance. Um, the character's <laughs> name, which I'm not going to be able to find right now. <laughs> Why did I even bring this up? I think it's Jules. Yeah. Jules? 
She calls in uh, during dream schemes and putting greens. Hey there, it's in the morning and we're on the phone lines. Who am I talking to? Jules, up on the Kayak River. Hey, Jules. That's the person who goes and like investigates uh, uh, where they're trying to find Holling. Like they can't find Holling because he hasn't showed up to the wedding. What's on your mind today? I went up to Baker's Point this morning to find Holling. He used to make camp there with the little John boys. Got to the chase, Jules. All I saw was a couple of empty beer cans and used condoms. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And I, I, I think, uh, the yeah, it, maybe we'll see Jules again, so. This is Jules up on the Kayak River. Hey, Jules, how you doing? Lousy with a capital Z. Yeah, it's going around. What can I do for you, Jules? I disagree with the last caller. Even if Dr. Fleischman is incompetent, well, that's not a reason to ship him to Siberia. I guess it's it's good that I'm bringing it up now so that we can look out for it again later. But let's keep an eye out for those characters that we never see and are only on the phone. Yeah, and let's get back to the episode at hand. Sorry for that derailment. Um, <laughs> no, it's okay. It is important to mention that when Mick, uh, sorry, when Maggie sort of breaks up with Rick in this episode, we get Maggie's theme. The yeah, music, I noticed that. Wonderful I love music. It. <laughs> Returning. Didn't think it was coming back. Oh, it, it's going to come back. I, like I thought, I yeah, thought I said we'll we'll hear this a lot. This is Maggie's theme, you know. Oh, okay, nice. Well, uh, do you think they're permanently broken up, or do you think they're going to get back together? Well, actually, you know the answers to this. You've seen the well, series. Well, no, that's a good. Yeah, I I I'm pretty sure Rick, no, Rick isn't gone. I don't think so. Um, so I remember them sharing more scenes together, but uh. Let's see what happens in the next episode. From all I can tell, I mean, from your perspective, that kind of looked like they broke up, right? It did. Like it it looked like they broke up. Let's just revisit it next episode and see what happens. I did want to touch, uh, Holling and Shelley do get back together uh, by the end of the episode. Return to the status quo. Um, they sort of make up. Uh, Holling still has this horrible crick in his neck. Mm-hmm. And Shelley's like, okay, just like lay your head against the bar. Like, you know, you're going to hurt your neck. Like, so Hauling has his head against the bar. She's kind of um, massaging his neck while he essentially professes his love to her um, and apologizes. He says something, yeah, he says something to the effect of, uh, I may not know how to be with you, but I can't bear living without you. That's sort of his... I think that's exactly his, how he says it, yeah. Anyway, Shelly, I guess, forgives him in her way. She sort of lays her head against the bar and kiss, they kiss together with their heads it's an adorable against the scene. bar. It's adorable. It's sort of like the um, precursor to the Spider-Man upside down kiss. You know, they hadn't necessarily perfected oh. <laughs> it yet, uh, but they're, they're trying out trying out different orientations for... Obviously, where they got that idea 11 years later when they made that movie. Yeah, Sam, Sam Raimi is a big fan of uh, Northern Exposure. <laughs> so it, that settles that it returns back to the status quo which it always does Holling and Shelley always return back to the status quo you know they said they we're going to get married that they're not going to actually get married she thinks she's pregnant she's not actually pregnant so it always really returns back to the status quo with those two characters but yeah we're, we're turning back to Ed and he's got the idea for his movie um oh wait, we should say um I guess we touched on it a little bit in the beginning but um uh, oh wait, wait, wait! Yeah, we are skipping something. I'm so sorry. Yeah, we're we're kind of jumping around. We're we're all over the place, but it's all good. Um, so Ed does uh, sort of join Joel in his cabin. It's like an early morning. We can tell because Joel is making breakfast. Joel is in his robe. Ed is buttering some toast. And uh, I like to think this scene uh, right before we jump into it. Ed probably broke into Joel's cabin and was just like staring at him <laughs> as he was sleeping, <laughs> waiting for him to wake up. But yeah, he broke through his cozy. eight locks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I didn't see his front door in this episode, so I couldn't tell if he added more locks or not. Um, 
on his door. But uh, no, it's just a very cozy scene because they're kind of preparing breakfast together. They sit down at the table and they share a breakfast. And Ed essentially, um, you know, Ed has his own ailment. It's not a medical, uh, necessarily like a medical problem. It's it's more of a creative uh, writer's block problem. Joel advises him, as we said earlier in the episode, Joel says, well, just write what you know about. And they have like a little bit of a Woody Allen appreciation festival like here at breakfast. Just They're really into Woody Allen. <laughs> yeah, these writers, um, I, maybe, like I said, I think Woody Allen was, some of his greatest works probably came from the 80s and the 70s, but apparently he has left a mark on uh, Joshua Brand and jo- John Falsey because they love... To bring up Woody Allen in in, in reference to what in reference to Ed and movies, um, but no, this scene they essentially list off um, a number of films uh, that Woody Allen has made, and it's like, oh, I love this movie, I love that movie. Yeah, and apparently Ed hasn't seen Crimes and Misdemeanors, which is according Joel's to Joel's favorite. Yeah, mm-hmm. Joel's favorite. That's a good. That's a good one. Um, yeah, yeah. I was just gonna say, like, that's what actually drives Ed to realize that these Hollywood blockbusters that he's imagining in these dream scenarios that he's having, they're not working because that's not what his life actually is. Like in the town of Sicily, when he's watching all these events play out, they're not actually the way they're playing out like it is in his dreams. So instead of going into there, write about what's actually happening right in front of him. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we see these dream daydream sequences from, from Ed and they seem cinematic and, and high concept, but in the end they kind of fall flat. They don't really make sense. So it's sort of like, you know, before Ed actually gets to put pen to paper, we see that his ideas aren't really forming when he's trying to um, exist in this sort of a high concept blockbuster mentality. But if we would step back for a second and uh, we, we flash, let's flash forward to the sort of the end of the episode, Ed begins to write a script about what he knows. Yeah. So he starts typing up the name of, uh, didn't he say the name of his movie is my literally movie or something? My movie. It's like the, yeah. uh, the iMovie uh, default um, file name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He starts writing it in and he, first of all, he, he can't type apparently because he's typing with one the finger. Index piece. fingers. Yeah. Index, index fingers. Finger that's, he's going to be working on this movie for decades if that's the case. I think but, that's some good, uh, that's some good uh, acting, you know? I do think, yeah, that's true to the character. Like, you know, it's 1990. Maybe, I mean, maybe the actor, Darren Burroughs, I believe, uh, maybe he doesn't know how to type. Oh, (laughs) the actor can't (laughs) Yeah, maybe maybe that's the case. But uh, no, I guess it actually, you know, it's a good characterization because Maurice sort of uh, introduces his Macintosh. It kind of feels like it might be the only computer in Sicily. Certainly the only computer we've seen. Joel doesn't have a computer. I think you're right. I think it is the only computer Mm -hmm. uh, in there. But hang on really quickly. I wanted to say that he does state out the population of Sicily yeah, in that we scene. Finally so 839. Get, yes. And I think we mentioned this in a past episode, but at least according to IMDb, that number is in reference to um, whenever the show got its budget uh, increase, I think to 839,000. I don't know if that was per episode or probably like per, per season. No, but probably per episode. I don't know how that worked, but apparently that number is in reference to a budgetary increase. Oh, um, okay. I was wondering knows. about that. Well, I could have sworn in the past episode, it was 837. Oh yeah. Population Please. went up by two. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> hang on. No, go ahead. No, yeah. There's definitely, there's definitely artwork. Um, like the DVD art, um, the pictures are of Joel sitting in front of a sign that says, welcome to Sicily population 214 or something like that. And then it's crossed out and it says 215. So 
they definitely have grown in population from maybe not from the episodes, but at least from the uh, promotional stills that they use to promote this ep- this uh, series. Mm, I like that you think that it's a natural organic growth and not the writers messing up and not knowing <laughs> the numbers. <laughs> well, the writers like this, a new writer gets an episode and is like, there's only 200 people in town. This makes no sense. No, no, we're changing that. We are skipping over a scene, actually, the dance scene. Yeah, so this is the culmination of the uh, the Maryland plot line. This is when uh, Joel asks Maggie to come to the powwow with him. You want to tell us mm-hmm. about the, your thoughts of the powwow? I, you know, we've talked about this already, but this episode has so many plot lines that are just going in and out, and I did not see the point of this plot line, to be honest. Like, I, I see what it's trying to tell uh, and the themes of it and how there's essentially isn't point. as one-dimensional as Joel thinks it is because, yeah. you know, there's a comic up there and he starts yeah. you know, talking about jokes and it's not what you think a it's powwow like, wait, would be. It's like, wait, I thought this was a powwow and, and uh, Maggie's like, uh, it's more of a talent show, really. Right. So maybe that's the statement it's trying to show that says yeah, kind of like is more than what you think it is. Diffuses but- the il- illusion of like, oh, it's a powwow. There must be like uh, this, uh, you know, chieftains like chanting and like right, this right. tribal ceremony. And it actually does uh, develop into that. But it, it's really, you know, this shows like a real slice of life of like what these communities probably really exist as. Yeah. And I think it's wonderful to show that. But in terms of this episode, I'm, I'm not too sure why the scene is even there. Because okay, I believe yeah. you can actually cut it out. Right. It would, the th- episode would still play out regularly. For sure. This doesn't really have a strong uh, plot like a, a strong place in the plot. Uh, my only argument for this could be like that. It does add, it is kind of one of the only moments in this episode um, that characterizes the episode as having some, some slower pacing and um, more thoughtful, more color of this sort of uh, the, the culture and the traditions in Sicily. Um, because otherwise this, this episode um all the other scenes kind of feel a lot more sitcommy, as we might have mentioned. Mm. And you're right, this doesn't necessarily this this the scene doesn't have to be in there for the episode to function plot wise. Um, but like I said, I, I I like it when this show um, sort of works against plot and focuses on character and um, characterizations of the town. Do you know what I mean? Like, is it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It doesn't when need to character. Be, yeah, it doesn't have to be there story-wise, but I'm really glad they put it in in here because one, it's it, again great cinematography. Um, when we actually do see Marilyn perform her dance, it um, she's wearing this traditional garb. There's these drummers who are chanting, and uh, Marilyn's expression is almost almost blank, uh, kind of serene, and it's just this great shot. Uh, the stage lighting is sort of like flaring up the lens. Marilyn's in close up. We get this beautiful camera flare, uh, lens flare. And it's a uh, very serene, you know, very Zen almost. Yeah. It really is wonderfully shot. Like you said, I didn't take note of that, but I just can't help feel that they, you're offended like by that deleted. Uh, <laughs> no, you wanted, the, you wanted the Rick scene. Well, I'm glad well, that they did. Feature I wanted the deleted scene that we talked about to take over for this scene. Cause yeah. I think that would have explained more context. Uh, but I mean, 
my argument would be, I understood it fine without the deleted scene. This added more to the episode. Like it had more of a positive add, mm-hmm. even if it was not uh, influential to the main plot or it seems, it definitely, you're right. This seems like uh, superfluous content, but I'm glad it was included. Super glad. Yeah, because, I see your perspective on why it should be included. Because this is what Northern Exposure should be, you know? And if you take that out of this episode, it becomes more of like any other sitcom. Even if uh, this episode would function perfectly fine without the powwow and maybe even function cleaner and better, I'm, I'm very glad they, they kept it. Okay, I respect your decision on yeah. that and I can see why, you, why you're going in that direction. But no, uh, you know, it's very important that you point that out because you're totally right that this is a, almost a superfluous, it has a superfluous function. Yeah, it's probably because, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking about this is because this episode is definitely not one of my favorite. It's, my, it's, it's coming close to being my least like episode. Yeah, I definitely want to do just, a ranking at the end. But uh, yeah. There's, yeah, there's been some stinkers, I would say, maybe. Uh, but mm-hmm. um. This episode just has so much going throughout it. I was uh, it just it's oh, it's very scattered, it's overloading. Yeah, yeah it's, it's kind scattering of a, well, and overloading it somehow. I was actually really um, when and I guess this is a good segue to our next segment. Uh, whenever I asked uh, my friend Will to watch the episode and give commentary on it, I did a little bit of skimming before I, I uh, sent him the episode to watch, and. Uh, I was a little nervous because I was like, this episode is not one of my favorites. However, <laughs> when I did watch it uh, from start to finish, like I said, you know, this is one of those episodes where there's so much going on. And, and I actually really like that. Maybe I like it more when all the plot lines sort of tie together in their own way. But I still really liked um, it. Was a, it was a nice palate cleanser from the Russian flu, which had um, multiple plot lines, but they were all kind of stuffed together in the central plot. They weren't very separated. Um, this one doesn't really connect. All the plot lines do not connect, but they're still uh, functioning out, you know, four or five plot lines, you know, right? I don't know. We Maybe we lost count this episode, but... <laughs> lost count of the threads. But yeah, that's right. We are... Um, we're going to introduce my friend Will. Uh, I, I chose him to watch this episode because he himself is a director, much like uh, the budding director in Ed. Um, Will is a film director. Um, I asked him for his commentary. Uh, maybe I should just play that for you right now. Are you ready, Charles? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Northern Exposure was pretty fun. My favorite character was probably the town's wise 15-year-old doctor who resembles a teenage Jerry Seinfeld. He's somehow been in the medical practice long enough to have seen hundreds of potential cancer patients. Either this guy finished med school as a child genius at the age of 12, or he's a complete fraud. My money is on some kind of catch-me-if-you-can scenario where Dr. Fleischman travels from town to town impersonating various occupational professionals. Although, he has been in this town long enough to become friends, roommates, or lovers with a local bad boy high school screenwriter who looks like he just fell out of the reject pile of Judd Nelson Breakfast Club headshots. Perhaps these two children are partners in crime, taking the town for a ride. Speaking of the town, it was really a mystery to me where it's actually set. Context clues point to it being in an American town, somewhere close to the Canadian border, as hockey seems to be an important conversation topic, and they really love that moose in the opening credits. However, their lack of any distinguishable regional dialect could really place this anywhere. Most frequently, they mention New York, Maryland, Alaska, and Saskatchewan, which has little to help me hone in on the location. Maybe its non-regional specificity is intended to help it appeal to a wider audience. 
The writing was definitely entertaining. The relationship between the young waitress Shelley and her elderly boss slash boyfriend Holling is thrown into chaos when her long-forgotten husband, Letterman jacket-wearing burnout Wayne, returns to town. Wayne was likely named after Wayne Gretzky, just like one-third of the northern male population of the time. My favorite part about this love triangle is the visually comedic ways the production displays the age differences. In one scene, Holling comes by Shelley's house to profess his love. He wears a neck brace, entirely sits on the couch, while Shelley remains standing, with a teddy bear in her arms. In this quick moment, it not only exaggerates the age difference, but also illustrates the emotional distance between them. Shelley is having serious doubts about the relationship at this point, age being a big factor. Good stuff. All in all, I thoroughly enjoyed the episode and would rate it as a perfect 10 out of 100. Okay. Do you need to hear that again? I kind of do. Do you, do you mind if we just play <laughs> yeah. it again? Yeah. Okay. You got okay. that? Yeah. <clears throat> you want me to pick it off? Can I? Yeah. Yeah. Please. So it seems that uh, Will, um, out of all of our guest analysts so far, Will seems to have missed... The mark, maybe, or, or I mean, not, not, not necessarily that. He, he, a lot of it may, perhaps went over his head. Yeah, uh, I love that this is the first time, actually, that our our guest viewer I has feel no like, idea where the town is even at. I feel like he's put, putting us on a little bit, but um, but I do like what he's pointing out. Um, I find it hilarious that uh, he believes Joel is 15 years old. Perhaps it's because like Joel looks too young to be a doctor. Maybe that's what Will's trying to point out. Yeah, it's like a Doogie Hauser situation. But we have to remember, Joel, you know, this is something that Will doesn't know from this, the context of this episode is that Joel has just finished medical school. So that's why he's, he's literally just be starting out as a doctor, right? Yeah, or, yeah. He's missing that context right there. <laughs> uh, I don't like this theory. You know, yeah. Just goes from town to town right there, impersonating various townsfolks and professions. And he's uh, perhaps lovers with Ed. <laughs> they've got this scheme um throughout the town yeah i really like that detail that he picked up on with the teddy bear and therefore that's a great juxtaposition between the age of hauling and shelling because yeah. of the stuffed animal that she needs for comfort and hauling has the neck brace because he's super of old his age. and he's yeah, yeah he's, I his body doesn't hold up, up that. well yeah it's good <laughs> they, they like, they've some good characterizations to kind of point out that uh, huge age gap which um Textually, we know is what, like 18 or 19 to 63? Well, how old is Holling? 63. 62, 63? Yeah, it's established it a few episodes ago. So yeah, old enough. And she even says, you're old enough to be my grandfather. So yeah, I really like his analysis on that. And I'm really surprised that he loved it. Well, I would 10 out of 100,000? What, what was his rating? <laughs> 10 out of 10, right? No, perfect 10 out of like 100 or something. He said it was a perfect... Hold on. Yeah, he gave it a 10 out of 100. So that would be essentially a 1 out of 10. So Okay, so he hated the episode. Got it. No, I mean, I think he's, again, I think we can tell this guy's just trying to play a little goof on us. Yeah. Nice one, Will. But no, as funny as his analysis is, it points out something that I wanted to try to see more of in our guest analysis is like, how out of context are you? So I think he's really trying to stretch it as far as he can and point point out like, all right, I haven't been watching this show as long as 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 us, you and me, Charles, mm -hmm. but Will's like, you know, I've only watched this for one episode. What are the things that might confuse me? And um, I like that he's pointed. <laughs> the, the Joel 15-year-old 
Um, I loved his characterizations too, to, you know, ref, you know, um, correlating the characters to like a young Jerry Seinfeld, Judd Nelson from the breakfast club. Uh, what else did he, he had some, some interesting characterizations. I wonder if he's doing that on purpose, bringing up, uh, figures that were really popular in the nineties to relate to this television show that was also in the nineties. Yeah. I guess they're very close. They have that, that, uh, chronological relation, I guess. Yeah, they were still in the, uh, the pop culture atmosphere at that time. I mm-hmm. like those references. Uh, what else does Will say? He's, yeah, as you, as you let off with, he seemed pretty confused about the, about the location of the town. Is, there, yeah. is it true? There's no way they don't say Sicily in this episode. Maybe they don't say Sicily at all in this Maybe episode. Maybe they don't. Uh, we know that they're well, in Alaska because yeah, he talks Will, about... F- it's not explicit, yeah. yeah. But, no, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, we know they're in Alaska because Rick has to go to Fairbanks, Alaska. And I think previously when he's getting the first examination by Joel in the beginning parts of the episode, he's talking about various locations that he'd been with in Alaska for the insurance company. Does he not? You're probably right. Yeah, I think you're probably right. So we get the, we get the sense of Alaska. We get the sense of uh, Canada because I, I believe that's where Wayne is coming from and where Wayne wants to return. Yeah, so I guess... Cecily just never got mentioned in the town. Interesting, interesting. I, I do like that comment that he said that maybe it's left ambiguous so as to appeal to the widest range of people. Yeah, because, well, it's interesting how Alaska is characterized in this show. As we said, there hasn't been any snow. There, honestly, right? There's no snow in any of these episodes, right? No, I, no. I guess no. except for the Soapy Sanderson urn thing. We talked about this last episode. Um, mm-hmm. Tune into episode five if, uh, if you want to know more about that. But, but yeah, it's surprising. Um, that Do you think this is actually a good reflection of what the rest of the, what, what the rest of America could be though? Because that's where I find it's very interesting Small that he even thinks that. No, this would be like, well, one of the most interesting um, things to me when I was watching this in high school was that, uh, you know, I grew up in the South and so there's, you know, quote unquote redneck uh, is sort of the culture down here. Um, and Northern Northerners have their own accent. Southerners <laughs> of the United States have their own accent. But Alaska being the furthest North actually seems to like loop the circle back because the rednecks, like the townsfolk in Alaska are just the same as like the rednecks, you know, in it's like, the South. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like the horseshoe theory. Have you heard of that? What's that? Where you go so far in one direction, you actually loop back loop, into the other back. direction. Exactly. Yeah, so that's what's exactly in play what's here. Playing here. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I'm glad. Uh, I was very uh, tickled by uh, by Will's little analysis. I'm glad we got yeah, a little, like a little yeah. off the wall there. Love his examination of the episode. I love that as we go further and further into the seasons, our guests are just going to get more and more confused. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm excited. I'm I'm really interested to see what happens in season two because uh, at that point, you know, everything will be pretty well established and I want to see, because I do feel like um, maybe, maybe it's not very strong in this episode, but in a lot of episodes, they do good. They do their best to sort of uh, build in a little bit of exposition so that, you know, people who are just tuning in for the first time aren't utterly confused, you know, Mm -hmm. they may be doing too much of a good job at it in some of the earlier episodes in this season. And maybe we'll lose that in the second season and in the seasons following. Um, but let's see, let's see how good, how, how well it holds up for someone who has never seen it before. That's, that's, I like that we have this, this little uh, segment of our show. Yeah, I know. I definitely agree. I guess before we sign off, so I, just so I don't have to record this in the credits, uh, I want to point out that, uh, 
audience, I don't know how you're listening to this podcast, but our show is available on Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Play Music, I believe, Stitcher, Spotify, and SoundCloud so far. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, Google Play Music will only be for Android phones, not for iPhones. Okay. And then I'm assuming that the the Apple podcast is probably only available for iPhones. Is that how yeah, that, that works? Um, but anyway, if you're listening to this already, you've probably figured that out, but um, <laughs> you figured out some way to, some way to hear this show. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're you, not broadcasting this, you know, free on the radio waves. Yeah. So you must've found out some way. <laughs> I mean, it's free, just not on the radio waves. So. Yeah. Just not on the radio waves. <laughs> um, but I will, I will impose a tax. If you are listening to this now, please subscribe. Um, on whatever service you're listening to, give us a rating, a review. Um, just let us know you're listening. Um, should I drop the email address? Like, are we ready? I don't think anyone's going to write in, but are we ready for I don't think anyone's to- going to write in either. <laughs> I mean, I'm also just like assuming like if someone were like sitting down or like, hmm, I want to write this show. I'm just going to type in a northern overexposure podcast at gmail.com. That, that's, our, that's our email. Like if someone just yeah. tried to guess what our email was, you would find it. So any yeah. questions, comments, concerns, uh, if you have any corrections too, you can write us in at Northern Overexposure Podcast at gmail.com. Get this, get all this out of the way so I don't have to record it later for our credits. <laughs> <laughs> so lazy. Um, do you have any uh, fi- final notes for this episode, Charles? Mm, I just got to say that it's not my favorite episode. Okay. Just gotta, yeah, not, yeah. didn't have a really great time watching this. No, that's just, good. Yeah. I, I want to hear, yeah, let's be completely frank about this. Uh, and I'm excited. Uh, I really think we should, once we wrap this season up, let's do like a, a review sort of of talk, talking um, big picture of the first season. Yeah, big talk about season one as a whole. Mm-hmm. I agree. We're getting close. I think uh, two more episodes. The next episode we have is uh, number seven, A Kodiak Moment, coming up next. That's a great title. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. All right. I'll see you next week. Yeah. See you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme song was remixed by Matt Jackson. And thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. Thanks to Will for watching the show and being our guest analyst. Will told me his favorite fictional doctor is Dr. Leo Spachemin from 30 Rock. And of course, thank you for listening. <laughs>